Hello and welcome to another Milsurf HQ podcast. Oh, wait, I wanted to do my um, forgotten weapons intro here. Uh, hi, guys. Thanks for tuning in to another. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I tried. Uh, hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Milsurf HQ podcast. Oh, that's perfect. We're saving that. See how I did? I did pretty good there. Uh, so today we're honored to welcome one of the world's foremost authorities on firearms. A man whose experience is unparalleled and who has not just seen it all, he's practically shot it all, too. He's a walking encyclopedia of weaponry. He's the driving force behind ForgottenWeapons.com and the new History of Weapons and War app and the site over at WeaponsandWar.tv. Please welcome historian, author, and fellow crazy collector, Ian McCollum. Wow, I think that's the, uh, the most intimidating intro I've ever had. <laughs> I don't know that I can live up to much of that, but I'll try. I think you'll do fine. So I appreciate you giving us the time to come on and talk to us. I know how busy you are, and uh, especially with the app and all and all the stuff you always have going on. So thank you so much. Fun. But uh, no, this will be fun. I'm looking forward to it. You don't strike me as someone who just wakes up and has nothing to do that day. Not so much, no. <laughs> uh, there's always something, like I said. Uh, I tend to spend about a third of my days on the road traveling, um, mostly filming. So when I'm when I'm here at home, it's a lot of video editing, a lot of research, prep, book writing, book editing, uh, you name it. Never ends. Yep, pretty much. But that's the fun part. It never ends. Right. <laughs> All right. Well, we can just go ahead and hop right into it. We always ask a, a couple of questions whenever we have a, a new guest on. Uh, we like to discuss what kind of collector are you? So we, we know that you obviously like French stuff, but are, do you consider yourself a like a pattern collector? Do you only collect French stuff, or are you just kind of all over the map? Uh, I was all over the map for a long time. I buy whatever kind of looked interesting at the time. And, and eventually I realized I was just kind of accumulating this weird melange of stuff, a lot of it odd, and I really ought to specialize. And so I, I chose to specialize many years ago in French um, small arms. And uh, I, I guess what you, I, I think you would call me a pattern collector in that what I'm primarily looking for is like one of each variation of something. Um, I tend to prefer moderately used. Like I like honest, decent wear on a gun. Frankly, totally pristine. Like the day they came out of the factory, guns make me a little bit nervous. Um, like I don't, I don't need to necessarily have that. I'll stick with something that went through some use and shows it, but is still in good, operable condition. Okay. Yeah, that was that was my next question actually. And part of that is, do you go for like all matching? Examples, or are you fine with like a replacement part here and there? I mean, I'd always prefer matching, but if my choices are non-matching or don't have the gun at all, I will go for uh, non-matching. Actually, one of the conundrums just like this that I had to make a decision on one time was uh, I, I have a, a pre-war MOS 39 or MOS 36 CR 39, so the, the paratrooper underfolding MOS 36. And I got it in trade from a French collector who wanted an Arasaka. And, you know, Arasakas are pretty easy to come by over here. So I found what he wanted. And he had two of these things. 
one of them was in better condition and the other one was matching. Oh. And I choose. You take the matching bolt, that was the issue in this case, or the better condition. What did you do? I'm, mm. I, I, <laughs> I took the well, matching gun. If you're not going to shoot it that much, then take the matching. Yeah. Yep, so you took, took this, so that that answers it. So you're into you're you're more about the matching than the condition. Yes. Now in this case, like the it wasn't that much worse condition. There was some discoloration. There was a there'd been some old uh, bit of corrosion on the gun that was uh, repaired up, but you could still tell a bit. Um, you know, if it's the difference between a an immaculate gun that's mismatched and a total junker, eh, then I'll probably go for the condition instead. Now, do you do you mess with anything that has like any sanding or reblowing or anything like that, or draw the line there? Um, if it's the only option I have, I'll take it. But it's something I'd always look to improve upon. Um, so I have I have a couple Arasakas that are sanded, and it's like you know I'd much prefer to have one that's not. But until I can find a good example of that specific series and pattern, then. I'll keep this example as, you know, the best I have. Uh, with the French stuff, the, the stock macarons, uh, you know, the, the round stamp with the date of, of acceptance, right. that's a really good example of this sort of thing where it's really pretty hard to find, especially particularly old French rifles that have good intact legible stock markings. And I, I'll always f take that if I can get it. But th there are a lot of different examples, different variations I have where the, the stock's been sanded or the marking's just been worn to the point of being illegible. And I'll happily have that if that's the best that I can find. And, and are you good at flipping them? Like when you upgrade, you sell the one you have. You're good at doing that? Because I end up with two of, of everything I upgrade. I'm, I'm <laughs> not really very good at that, actually. <laughs> I'm going to say that I will. And then they sometimes just kind of stick around. <laughs> right, you find Maybe. some other reason to, to hold on to it. Yeah, you know, well, it's not quite the same. It's also got, you know, well, it's a different factory. So I ought to keep both of them, really. Yeah, yeah that happens. <laughs> and do you need to have the slings and the bayonets for all of them as well? No. Um, oh. Well, so I have almost all the bayonet patterns for French. Um, and I have a smattering of bayonets uh, of other uh, periods and countries. I like to have a set of the bayonets, but I don't need a bayonet for every rifle. Interesting. Um, slings, I mean, with French, it's kind of a non-issue because they basically had one sling and they put out on everything for about 100 years. So, yeah, I've got tons of duplicates of slings because whenever I, you know, what, third quarter of the time, if you pick up a French rifle, it has a sling on it already. So I got a whole mess of slings. Um, frankly, slings annoy me a bit. They get in the way when you're trying to to display rifles, when you're trying to you know put yes. them on racks or on pegs. Um, just yeah, and they're never they're never that easy to take off too when you're you're up there oh, hanging no. them on a wall. No, they're they're a pain in the butt <laughs> to take off, and you inevitably are going to damage them when you take them off. <laughs> yep. And uh, yeah, so uh, honestly. <laughs> I don't know if I'm quite at the point where if I was presented two equal rifles, one with a sling and one without, I would deliberately take the one without the sling, but it's cool. 
Yeah, I guess it depends how rare the sling is. Yeah, you know, there are exceptions. Arisakas. The like, rubberized Arisaka slings. Yeah, that are impossible to remove. Uh, but I've got one with a braided rope sling. I've got one of the cool, quick cool. detached Type 99 slings. Those are neat. It's not something I spend a lot of time, you know, really hardcore trying to collect all of, but I enjoy it and appreciate it when I can get it. And, and what percentage would you say of your collection is French? Uh, about 50%. Okay. Wow. You know, I, I was asking some people, what do you think? And, and I heard as high as 95%. They heard you say 95%. Uh, and some people said as low as 10%, but right there. Oh, right in the middle, <laughs> right in the actually. Middle. There's one thing that some collectors will, will do. And this, honestly, this came as a surprise to me. The first person someone told me about it because it just is kind of alien to me. Like They'll build a collection of something. And then once they've got basically everything or everything that they think is feasible, they'll sell the entire thing and use the money to start some other collection theme. <laughs> yeah, I've seen and that. I, That's like a sickness. Yeah, I don't do that. Like, I, if I finish one, I'm going to just start finding something else that's cool. So, um, in fact, I mentioned Arasakas. I have a decent collection of Arasakas, largely started by guns that I got from my father, who had collected Arasakas. Uh, but I would never, like, sell off my French collection to get more Arasakas or vice versa. Your collection is just getting larger and larger. Yes. <laughs> I think, I, and I'm probably not alone in that. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm there as well, and you can ask kinda, my wife. She knows I'm here there. <laughs> kind of how it goes. I buy five, is... sell one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> claim, claim you sold one. <laughs> One of the issues I have also is, is the fact that I do run a YouTube channel. And if I didn't, I have a fair number of guns I would probably get rid of. Like a, a really good example is I have an Argentine uh, Mauser cavalry, uh, Mauser short rifle. And right. I, I don't collect Argentine guns. I'm not particularly interested in having a huge collection of Mausers. There's nothing particularly unusual about this one. It's in nice shape, but there's nothing special about it. I got it. I got it like eight years ago in a, a batch from Rock Island. It was just nice, so I kept it. And now I'm I'm loath to sell it because, well, you know, what if I'm doing a video at some point where, oh, I want to compare this to a rifle in 7.65 Argentine, or I want to show the mid-length pattern of Mauser, or any number of possible situations that I can't immediately think of where if I have the gun, well, I can just go grab it off the wall. But if I don't have it, then if I really need it, I'll have to go find one and buy it. And, you know, I already have it. So I might as well, I ought to just keep it just in case something comes up where I need that as an example. <laughs> You're Which, like a master of, of, of an excuse for yourself to keep it. That's pretty funny. Yeah, a lot of I'm negotiation thinking, there. Yeah. And I tell myself it's because of the video channel. If I wasn't making videos, I wouldn't have that need, and I'd get rid of a number of things like that, that Argentine Mauser. And I think it's true, but I'll never I, know for sure until I decide to stop Forgotten Weapons and then see if I actually sell some of that stuff. I, I think you should just keep, hold on to it, because I'm the Mauser fanboy, and, and my, I want you to do more Mauser work, so <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. A little bias there. Yeah. Mauser HQ guys say I can't sell it, so that's the end of that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was there totally going to. All right, I think we had another 
couple questions about your collection. So for the rest, rest of the non-French things, uh, what what would you say your percentage is of like Milserp stuff versus more modern rifles? Oh, ninety percent Milserp. Okay, maybe a little bit more. It's, it's a good. Place. It's all Milserp. Yeah. Uh, honestly, most of the modern guns I have are because of uh, video stuff. Um, you know, interesting mechanical things or just neat concepts that that come out that I'm able to work with a company and you know get one on loan or get a good deal on one or occasionally get one for free and use in video. And I like them, but like I'm not going out of my way to to buy a lot of modern guns. Good, that's good to hear. Because I, I again, I was asking people, and they were like, "Oh, he he's got at least sixty, seventy percent modern," and he I, only shows you the the mill syrup on the side. I'm like, all right. No, there are times when I'm trying to think about like, oh, I want to do a, you know, a cool high speed, low drag two gun match. What should I take? Like, I, I, I don't actually have all that much because 90% of my collection are bolt actions. <laughs> hey, I enjoy those, those videos a lot more than the another guy with an AR. That is true. Yes. All right. One, one last one on the collection here. You said um, seven years ago now. That your oldest was an 1868, uh, the Chasse and uh, your newest was a 2016 Ruger Precision. Have you updated your oldest and newest since? You have been online stalking me. I have been watching. We've been, you know, we the, the major concern was asking you questions that you've been asked a billion times already. So we tried to, to go over it and not do that. So yeah, it's some research. Um, but yes, I have expanded in both directions. So, um, newest now, like I'm. I wonder if you went to Flitlock. Uh, not quite. So newest, I have a number of guns that are made like this year because they're things that I've gotten from companies. So, off the top of my head, the Springfield Echelon, um, the new Alien, those are both literally current, current immediate production. And then I actually picked up an 1848 dated uh, French percussion rifle. Wow. Um, yeah, not something I'm really trying to expand my collection into quite yet, but uh, it was a trade deal. I was looking to get rid of, honestly, I can't even remember what it was, um, but I had a guy offer me that in trade and it was in really nice condition and good legible markings. And um, yeah, so now I've got one. Once you're getting into to that, that's a whole other world of of Millsurf that you probably are now realizing is like just as exciting and big as the machine gun world, right? Like the whole black powder. So it's realm. As, it's as big, but to me, it's not quite as exciting. Um, there is some cool stuff in there. Like I think there's a lot of technological iteration and development in flint and percussion guns that people don't really think about, and. Lucky me, a lot of that stuff, the French were on the cutting edge of. So they've got some neat things, but they're not that exciting to most people. They're interesting to me, but not, they don't really jump out and, and grab me. And I don't know if you've looked at, like, what are all the patterns that were made of French flint and percussion guns? And the answer is a freaking gajillion of them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I would, I would, well, know, when they they would say just like mini ball for the all those guns because they couldn't say the the the, the makers, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
when in reality about every 20 years there was some new new pattern of gun which then got made in like five different variations because you had the infantry one and the dragoon one and the cavalry one and the artillery one and then you've got the conversions of the previous pattern up to the next pattern and then in 20 years you repeat the whole thing and so oof man it someday maybe i'll i'll try to get into that but that's a daunting sort of collection to to try to get into if you actually want to have everything well, speaking of getting into, uh, you said before your dad was into Japanese firearms, and for those that don't know, he, he wrote a book. It was my first Japanese rifle book. Um, oh, excellent. Japanese Take rifles of World War II, I think, right? Yes. Um, but so what, when did you start getting into, like, Millsurp arms in general, and then why did you not get into Japanese? Because, like, my kids don't care about my my hobby so <laughs> like what did you start caring and why did you not get into the japanese and then um oh, a so different I, way. I got into guns in general when i was in high school and it was kind of an even mix of modern guns and historical guns so like, my first pistol was a colt 1903 um first rifle was just a very practical 22 um like early on i had a daewoo k2 at one point but then I also had a number of, of Millsert sorts of things. Um, I didn't get into Japanese because while the whole concept was cool, while I really appreciate seeing the, the change, degradation in, in, develop, in manufacture of Arasakas, I guess my dad had all of them. So it wasn't really the sort of thing I wanted to go out and get myself. Like they're all right there. I don't need to duplicate that. Oh, that I want to find my own yeah. cool. Um, and in fact, that lasted a long time. I never really looked to you know after I got out of school and had my own place and started collecting more seriously. I I wasn't really looking to duplicate my father's collection, which is good because he eventually just kind of lost interest and moved on to other other things and decided to sell off his collection and. Uh, Long story short, I ended up with about half of it. And in the meantime, wow. what I'd been doing with Japanese guns is looking for the weird stuff. Like, I wanted to see some of the really early guns. I, in particular with the Arasakas, I like finding Chinese copies. So, yeah. yeah. And, and what about um, the alternate calibers, like the 7.62, yep. 39? I've got a couple of 7.62 by 39s. I've got an 8mm Mauser example. Yeah. Uh, and then some 6.5 Arasaka. So and when I did end up getting a bunch of my dad's guns, it kind of meshed perfectly with what I already had because he had mostly the standard sort of guns, the, the progression of Type 38s, Type 44s, Type 99s. Um, and I had kind of the weird stuff on the extremities. And was he into something else besides Japanese firearms or that was his main focus? So this was largely before I was really aware of, of his gun collecting, but this, this relates back to your asking what sort of collector is a person. My dad actually originally uh, was into French and Japanese, and his interest in French guns had literally no impact on me because he wasn't, he wasn't doing that anymore by the time I was aware of it. What he actually did is he had a, a dealer's license. He had no one FFL. He was one of the infamous kitchen table gun dealers. And 
he would buy French guns to flip and make profit on, and he would buy Japanese for his own collection. Oh, so it, it was a way to be in the business, but also building your own collection. Like, you know, don't get addicted to your own product sort of thing. <laughs> right, to get the handle of the French guns. Yeah, so he, what he recognized is, especially if you want to be, I mean, if you want to be a collector, but even more so if you want to be a successful dealer, you need to have an area of specialized knowledge or else, you know, you're, you're kind of playing on the same field as everybody else. You, you want to have some advantage, something where you really understand the details of the guns you're looking so at. So what point did he write the book in his career in that? Was it towards the end or was it early on? Relatively late. Um, not at the very end. Um, I remember him taking pictures for the book in our garage. So I was probably 12 years old, something like that. I actually have a copy of it. I can he printed it in 96. So I was 13 years old when he printed that. Wow. So, yeah, I didn't really know about his guns so much at that point. But I, rem I remember him taking pictures by going out in the garage, putting a white sheet on the floor, putting the rifle on it, and then climbing up on the ladder to get high enough up above the gun. And of course, this was all a film camera. I'm taking note because my son just turned 13, and this is the <laughs> stuff he's going to remember. My dad lined up all his guns. <laughs> I did the same. I was on a ladder taking photos. Oh, I no. When I, was, when I was working on my book, I was talking to him about book stuff, and it hadn't really occurred to me that he did this all with a film camera. So he'd take oh. all the pictures, and then you have to wait till you get them back developed to find out if, like, right. did, they, did you get what you were hoping to get? Does, do they look good? Not this, not our digital cameras today, where you can take a thousand pictures and immediately see what's good and what's not. Right. That's impressive. Yeah. And that was everybody. I mean, that's, it's not like he was out doing some special thing there. Right. But you know. to even to know how much work goes in back then to go into getting a book out is and continuing to do it like now it's there's so many digital like you said so many digital photos you could you could probably make a book on your iphone oh yeah <laughs> so don't tell james rupley i said that because <laughs> he will disagree vehemently but you could make a, a <laughs> mediocre looking book with an iphone absolutely you could still a book so why didn't you get into Mauser? I'm like I said, I'm a Mauser guy, and I heard on Danny and Aaron uh, on Millsurp World's podcast that you you had a sporterized Swedish Mauser, one of your first. That's true, yeah. So how come you didn't just get into Mausers? Your dad was into Japanese, fine. Mausers. I mean, are you gonna take offense at this? <laughs> not not a real offense. Uh oh, oh, problem, boring as in like solid and. Consistent. They're, they're all the same with different crests on them. Kind of. I mean, I realize that's exaggeration, but I mean, if you look at like when I started, you know, Forgotten Weapons, it's it's very specifically the weirdest, most unusual stuff I could find, and that's what always interested me: were things that are different. And so, honestly, I, like one of the questions there. You because everybody does ask me about it, is why French? And largely the answer to why French is the French stuff is all different. To me, it's a lot more interesting than, you know, oh, it's 1920, and so 80% of the world is armed with the same Mauser 98 with different sling swivels and a different crest on it. That is true. It's not, it's not as exciting, but it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a solid, serviceable action. Oh, 
Would I take a Mauser 98 over a LaBelle if I have to go into a gunfight? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I'm going to collect the LaBelle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's fair. And so since you got a Swede Mauser first. I got rid of that. Actually got that rid did. of that thing a long time ago. That was a yeah. very sporterized rifle. And it just um, kind of seemed cool and handy. And then I discovered that was like that was my first introduction to oh sometimes ammunition is really a pain in the butt to get. <laughs> Six Swede was hard for me to find as a high schooler, and um, I mean a part big part of the reason I bought it was it was really cheap at the time because it's a totally hacked up, sporterized. You know, it's not worth ain't worth nothing. So, <laughs> so if if that didn't send you down the the Mauser spiral, what was your Second or third mill serpent? What kind of like trigger triggered the 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 itch? To be honest, I don't remember what what the rest of my early mill serp rifles exactly were. Um, because to me, it's not. It was more about the historical time period that was interesting, not the specific guns. I got into mill serp because World War One and World War Two were really interesting, not because. I thought a Mauser was a, a cooler gun than an AK, for example. Okay, that's fair. So a lot of the early ones you, you've already sold and, and moved on from then, that means? Yeah. Boy, if I thought about it really hard, I might be able to figure out which... Oh, well, how about this? What was your first French firearm? Um, my first really good French firearm was a, uh, a Berthier cavalry carbine that I got. It was one actually that I got in another batch from Rock Island. Um, I'll tell you what, those guys got their hooks into me with the regional auctions. I, I was buying a fair amount of stuff from them because for a while... So you're, the one buying the, you're the one buying the lots that have nine guns in them? Uh, a couple times, yeah. I tried to avoid <laughs> the nines. Like, I liked four. <laughs> um, because the thing was they'd always basically they'd put in one good gun to to hook people and two that are fine and one piece of crap because yeah. well whenever they buy up an entire collection or consign a whole collection they'd have a bunch of you know 10 percent total garbage but they have to move it so well what do we do we pair it up you want the nice thing you have to take this piece of garbage at the same time um, yep. and that led there were people who are who weren't interested enough to be willing to deal with the other three or four guns in the lot. And it just, they're like, well, I wanted that thing, but you know what? A lot costs twice as much as the one gun I want because there's four other guns in there and I don't want to deal with them. And so for a while, that was a good way to get some pretty darn good deals. Um, and yeah. yeah no, but, I've noticed when you do the math on some of those lots, it, it works out to, to your advantage. Yeah, if you, if you, Go if yeah. you buy four or five or six of them. Yeah, sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. There are people who will get carried away, and <laughs> you know, and they'll add up all the values, and then you know, not maybe take into consideration the the buyer's premium, and then the shipping, and then shipping. oh, well, I almost got it, so I'll just put in two more bids to make sure that I beat that guy, and that's that's what auction houses thrive on. Uh, yeah, we so we've I, talked about it before. Where we put it, we're pretty good at setting our maxes and then walking away, and then we'll be sad later if we didn't get it. Don't yeah. chase. Exactly. Yep. So what I would do, what I did at the time for those things was typically I'd have a whole list. I'd have like two dozen lots that I was going to bid on, 
and I had maximums for them and I do all the bidding on the phone because I couldn't put in bids ahead of time because I could only afford to get like one or two lots. And so <laughs> I just, I bid my maximum until hopefully I got one of them. I was going to say, what happened if you won like six of them? <laughs> well, that's, that's, then that's a problem. Then they come break your legs. <laughs> no, that's when you see, hi, I'm Ian at Rock Island and he starts doing favors. It won't let me leave until I film 18 more videos. <laughs> That's funny. Now, now, part of the fun there with doing, I mean, obviously part of the reason that I started filming there is they had an insane quantity of stuff that I could pick really interesting. They always had a bunch of cool stuff, you know, plenty for me to film for a week. But it also gave me the chance to look through the regional auction stuff while I was there and figure out, oh, what do I want to bid on? Um... Probably the best thing I ever found at one of those auctions was a, a Gewehr 41 that had, I, I, I can't, I really can't authenticate it, but I uh, got um, it. A Mauser one or a, uh, no, a Walther. Walther. Okay. It's a Walther, but it's got what appears to be a field armor welded on ZF 41 rail. Ooh, that's cool. And it was not mentioned anywhere in the description or the, you know, the, the auction never mentioned it. And the the side view of the gun, it was really hard to notice. In fact, I didn't notice it in the side view. The only reason I noticed it was there is because I was wandering through their racks. I went, oh, a G41, and I pulled it out. I'm like, what's this thing on the side? And, well, that's pretty cool, so I'll bid on that. And the gun had a badly sporterized stock on it. And so I ended up winning it because I think... The stock dropped the value, and I don't think many other people noticed that it had that ZF-41 rail. So, is it real? Is it fake? I don't really know, but it's cool. It's, like, it certainly didn't sell for the price that it should have if it was real. Like, if someone was trying to, if someone faked it and was trying to get money out of it, they failed badly. So. <laughs> right, it wasn't going for sniper prices. Yeah. I tried to do that sort of thing other times without it working. Like, I remember once I found a Schutztruppen Gewehr 98 in one of their regionals, which, like, it looks exactly like every other Gewehr 98 except the bolt handle's bent, and it had a stock disc with the right secret code on it. And, um, yeah, a lot of other people noticed that one, too, actually. <laughs> I did not get it. <laughs> Dang. So do they determine that what goes in a lot? Like you were saying that they throw in one junker with a few decent ones? Yes. Yeah, so okay. they, they choose the lotting. The things that, like the considerations that go in, first off, every gun in the lot has to come from the same consigner because there's no way that they could split uh, a lot price to multiple consigners. You know, how do you say which gun was worth what? It's impossible. So every lot is a single consigner. Um, and then, I don't know what their formula is. I never really talked to them in, in detail about that. But you look at those lots long enough, and you're like, okay, obviously what they're doing is they're, they're keeping a general theme to each lot, and there will typically be something, there will be a best item in the lot, and there will be a piece of crap in the lot. Yep. Well, they're doing something right, because they are, I would say, the number one auction house. Oh, they're making freaking money hand over fist. <laughs> yeah. And I've seen some of their shipping prices, so uh, <laughs> yes, it's, yeah. it adds up. It, it absolutely adds up. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's very easy to to put in a bid at an auction. And <laughs> actually, here's a perfect example for you. Um, I found an auction that had East German helmets. I'm like, oh, I want to do a thing with a whole East German rig. I don't have a helmet. I've got the uniform, but I need a helmet. And here's this auction lot of five East German helmets. And they're all in like perfect brand new condition. And I put in a bid of 50 bucks. I'm like, you know, who want, and, and I won it for 50 bucks because nobody else really wanted East German helmets from a little auction house. Well, by the time I added on the shipping, the handling, the buyer's premium, the tax, and the credit card fee, those five helmets cost me 150 bucks. And yeah. <laughs> they I, get you like that. I immediately regret the, this. The, the, the handling fee. Yeah. Whatever like, that is. Handling fee. Come on. And then, you know, they show up in a box the size of like a coffee table because they've individually bubble wrapped every helmet and then filled the box with peanuts. <laughs> like, uh, even if this was 50 bucks, now I'd be pissed that I have to deal with, you know, eight cubic feet of peanuts. <laughs> right. All I wanted was one stupid helmet. Did you really win? No, no, I did not. <laughs> no. Uh, and I left that auction a bit chastened. Not left, this was all online. But uh, What I ended up doing was taking the... I kept one, I took the other four to a two-gun match and stuck them on a bench at the front of the match with a sign, 20 bucks a piece. And I... <laughs> Perfect. I sold them all for like 60. I think someone offered me, you know, 30 bucks for two of them kind of thing. But I got rid of my other four East German helmets. All right, so we, we pried into your uh, collection. I was glad, though, that it was mostly Milserp, so that's good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like almost all Milserp. And um, so we were talking about, uh, I think on the last podcast, about how a lot of us talk about writing a book, like, oh, we should get together, we should write a book. A lot of people say it, but don't actually do it. And you did it three times, and so... I'd just like to give you some credit just for that alone, getting it done. Oh, yeah. Because it must have been a hell of a project, just, just one of them. I figured out the secret to it, Ooh. which is actually start it. Ooh. Uh, wait, so, so just talking about it, that's not enough? Weirdly, it doesn't seem to actually lead to a book being written. <laughs> but if you sit down and... Like, start by writing out a table of contents. You know, okay, what am I going to cover? What do I want to do here? And then you don't have to write it in order. Pick the thing that you're excited about at the moment. Like, oh, I just, I just got a new 4956, and I got all interested in, I don't know, the sites on the 4956. So I'm going to write a section on the 4956 and do that. And, you know, the next day, maybe it's LaBelle Magazine Systems. Um uh, like you don't have to write it in order. Just write something. Just write something. And is and, it easier or harder to write a book with someone than on your own? Oh, uh, I don't know. I've never really done a collaborative book. Uh, well, I've done okay. I've done collaborative books, but I've never done one where I shared the writing. So gotcha. A bunch of my books have been collaborations with James Rupley on the photography, but that's him doing the photography and me doing the writing and not really sharing the workload of the writing. And so your your Chasse Fomas book, the first one, I, I use as an example to some people to uh, as what a book should be, because 
my mind works well when you have the small sections with the, the clear bold headings and the photographs over two pages and the charts, production charts and the specification charts in the middle of the page. Like no offense to Olson. I, I know he was a, he was great in his time, but the Olson bolt action book reads like a textbook. Yes. You know, yeah. and the way I, your book, when I flip to, I want to look up a, a serial number. I want to, it, it's in bold right in the middle of the freaking page. I love it. Well, I think that's because we're both fairly similar on the, in the collecting world. Um, my my intention with the book is I want to write a book where any French rifle that you will be able to find to buy, you can identify all the relevant, important information from this book. So I didn't try to get into all the prototypes. It's like, you're never going to find this stuff unless you're the curator of the Musée d'Armée in Paris. Um, and frankly, it adds so much work to try and get all of that information for, I mean, this, this may sound, you know, vulgarly practical, but do I really want to spend that much time and effort to get information that isn't actually really of much practical use to people? Uh, and the answer was right. no. So I stuck to basically standard production guns, including some pretty rare ones, but stuff that you'll actually find. And yeah, I love dates, serial numbers, production timelines. To me, that yes. puts a lot of context into the gun. And, um, and major changes that you know should be easy to find, like the uh, the bolt plug update yeah. on the Moss 36. I was like, what year was that? I was doing a trivia. I was like, and I know, I know it's going to be in the book. It's going to take two seconds. And it was right there in the middle of the page. It awesome. said it's designed in 38, but not put in for a little while, though. I learned. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so that was my intention with that book. Um, the second one was Great. a little different, the, the Chinese Warlord pistols, because there just isn't any information on those. You said about the Chespo book that there wasn't a lot of English uh, books. There was a lot of more in French on all that information. I would think the same with the China book. There's, no, there's not a lot of English books on that. Yeah, There ain't nothing in no language on the Chinese stuff. Um, I had a number of contacts in China that I worked with, tried to work with on that book. And frankly, we have more of the guns and we know more about them than the Chinese do these days. Oh, my gosh. Um, all, all that stuff in China got destroyed during the Cultural Revolution in the 50s. I couldn't find anything, hardly. Um, there are museums in China that have some of these guns on exhibit. I got pictures of a number of the, the museum collections, and they would include things like rubies. They kind of look like they're maybe from this period and this type of gun, but they're clearly not. Like the Chinese museums don't really know. They can't properly identify what they've got at all. Now, now the copies are pretty close, but you could still tell, though, right? I mean, they, yeah. they might look close, but how's the quality in general with the Chinese pistol copies? It really runs the gamut. Some of them are outstanding, um, and some of them are horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's because they were made by the the whole gamut of production facilities. You literally could have... I've got one in the book that looks... If you squint a lot, it looks like a C96, but it's a single-shot percussion gun. <laughs> you cock the hammer oh, back, wow. and there's a percussion nipple there. Cool. And it, it was clearly made by like one guy with a blacksmith forge and some rivets and some sheet steel. And at the oh, other end, cool. 
factories that were set up with German and American technical assistance by the imperial government, you know, before the Chinese Revolution, and they're making top quality stuff. Uh, and so it really was everything in between. Um, the real genesis of that book was a friend of mine. So let me take a further step back. There's a U.S. Air Force general, retired, who spent 40 years collecting these pistols. That was his thing. Um, and I think he's still around, but he's in fairly poor health. And a number of years ago, he was getting old and he decided, like, uh, I'm going to sell off my collection. I don't want my wife to have to deal with all this crap when I die. And he sold the entire imagine, collection. Imagine her having to explain that. These these very specific rare guns, what they are. Oh, I got yeah. I got no idea what this is here. Yeah, and, no, and the person she's telling probably doesn't know. Oh yeah, and these are guns that everybody knows are garbage. Like, <laughs> you know, bless this guy for recognizing that they were interesting because you hand those, you know, mostly the C ninety six copies and the FN nineteen hundred copies. You hand those to anyone who isn't intimately familiar with them, and they're like, "Oh, that's cool. You have a piece of garbage." You know, this is horrible. The finish is crap. The grips are broken and missing. The gun doesn't work. The rifling is like milled backwards because they didn't have proper rifling cutters. They just wanted to make something that looked like rifling. Like this is literal worthless crap. And yet Lou Curtis here recognized, you know, he saw the the interest in them and that that's fantastic. And he, I suspect he bought every one of them he ever found because he had hundreds and he sold wow. the whole collection as a batch to a friend of mine. And, you know, I've seen these guns. I think my first video on the, the Chinese pistols is like 2014 or 2015. And so I'd seen them. Rock Island, actually, here they come up again, had gotten a small collection of like 10 from some guy to sell. And so I did a video where I've got like a bunch of them. But that doesn't tell you anything. It's just every one of them is totally different. I was gonna say, how many are the how many are the same as the other one? Like, are there any two the same? Um, so what became really interesting with this is when I got to look at three hundred of these things all in one place, we started to see the patterns. Like, oh, oh. This, this is a pattern. Every gun is different, individually different, but they're all clearly made the same. Okay, interesting. There's one that's a kind of like the Mausers, the Chinese Mausers. The, yes. the Chiang Kai-shek rifles. The difference there is those are all factory guns. They're like oh, right, four right. different versions of them, but they're all made by legit factories. They have serial numbers that make sense, that sort of thing. These are all, uh, the, the best way I had it explained was you'd have a factory that's, let's say it's a full-scale proper factory, and they're making rifles. And Chinese armies didn't have a lot of officers. They didn't use many pistols. And so some warlord would come in and they're like, okay, I want 10,000 rifles and 50 pistols. And so what the factory would do is they'd set up a production line to make the rifles, you know, as we would in Europe or in the US. But you don't set up a, a production line to make 50 pistols. They take like their five best machinists oh and each God. one of those guys has to make 10 pistols. That is funny. And, and so they're basically all gonna be to the same pattern but every gun is individually handmade, and so they all come out looking a little bit different. So it's like a Netflix game show. <laughs> I, you know? Could, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, people look at these and they're like, oh, every gun's different. Therefore, whoever made them is an incompetent rube. Some of the guys were incompetent rubes. Some of them were really quite skilled machinists. Um, 
Some of these are really well-made guns. Now, the markings are usually going to be total gibberish because your competency as a machinist is completely unrelated to whether or not you speak English if you happen to live in China in 1925. You know, the, the other thing I'll, I'll tell people is like, if I ask you, like, I'll show, here's a Chinese gun with some Chinese characters marked on it. Now, I'm going to take it away. Now, you make a pistol and mark it in Chinese. You're gonna end up with total nonsense, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, I would. Uh, you know, I I can't tell it. Did I? Oops, I okay. I put that character in flipped left to right or upside down. I can't tell. I don't read that stuff. It's no right. different. Like, I remember one of your, the ones you have, uh, the FN, the Belgian FN. That's like it's not an F. It's yeah. some other letter. <laughs> but exactly. you can tell it's trying to be an FN. Yeah, some yeah. of those are. Hilarious. Like, I, I remember seeing one where I guess the only thing they remembered was FN, so it was just FN, 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 FN. Yeah. Oh, yeah, over and over. Yeah. So there are some cultural issues there, but the quality is not necessarily related to the, the market. But you're still not shooting these things, are you? Um, a few of them I will. Ooh. So I have the, the Shanghai Arsenal, which was a legit arsenal, made a fascinating sort of variant on the FN 1900. Um, so the FN 1900 was formally adopted by the Chinese Imperial Army before the revolution. It was in China, it was known, and it became sort of a standard. Like everybody knows the FN 1900, know it's really good, so we're gonna make copies of that. Um, and that's that and the C96 are by far the most common guns. Like 50, 60, maybe 70% of all of these pistols are clones of 1900s or C96s. The Shanghai Arsenal took the, the FN 1900, they lengthened the barrel to six inches, they gave it a 500 meter tangent rear sight, they stretched the grip so it has a 10 round single stack mag, and they put a shoulder stock slot on it. Oh, Ooh, that's cool. They're, yeah. They're ahead of their time. And I, I have a video on that, by the way. And the Shanghai Arsenal was a real arsenal. They made a couple thousand of these things, and I have one of them. And that I took to a match and shot it, and it ran pretty nicely. Uh, and I have no concerns about safety on that. Um, the individual artisanal stuff, a lot of it's going to be fine, but I just can't tell. You know, you can't tell what the heat treat is from just looking at the outside. So the rest of them, no, I All don't right. shoot. So I didn't realize that this year you had a third book come out with some more beautiful photos that I saw there, the small arms of World War II. So, uh, yes. are we going to have now a small arms of World War I and Civil War? Are we going to, are we getting a whole collection here? Um, my, my, my list making and collecting <laughs> gene would say, oh yeah, oh, I'll make a huge list of all the different books that can be in this series. But the realistic answer is, we do plan to have six volumes on World War II. Oh, uh, one, shit. One for each of the major combatants. So I have actually, I don't think I've told anyone this, so you've got a, a scoop here. Ooh. I have just finished doing the first draft of Russia, World War II nice. Russia. Oh, shit. All right. So that'll be, oh, that'll yeah. be the sixth one. And then we're also going to do Germany, UK, Italy, and Japan. Very nice. Oh, yeah, God. I was I was kind of wondering when I first heard about this. Cause I'm like, oh, isn't this kind of a saturated market? Until I saw the pictures, I'm like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Yeah, so that that and that's a very legitimate question. Like, 
Uh, really? You can't go find information on U.S. World War II guns anywhere? And there kind of isn't anything that has the pictorial quality of what we did. And what I tried to do was take to get better information than your standard sort of Barnes and Noble, you know, printed in the 90s coffee table sort of book. Like, I think I know I grew up with a bunch of those and I loved them as a kid. But when I look back at them now, I'm like, eh, there's some problems with this. And right. they generally like they were written. I don't want to call them content farms, but I feel like they weren't really written by collectors, by people who had a really deep knowledge of the subject matter. So there's a lot of stuff that gets left out. And what we wanted to do with these is cover all of the standard weapons and then also pretty much all the second tier sort of weapons. So the World War II one has um, has victory model revolvers. It has the Colt 19, Colt and Smith 1917 revolvers. Um, and, and how deep with the info that, uh, as far as my, back to my charts. Do, no charts. Do, you, no, do we have no charts here? But do you nope. have, you explain the years of production and all that in general, or? Generally, but not exhaustively. Um, these, where Chasse-Pot de Famas was very much intended to be a book for collectors to understand French rifles. This series is intended to be a book for people who think World War II is pretty cool and guns are pretty cool. And hey, what if I had a book, uh, you know, not the collectors, but a more, I don't want to call it, amateur makes it sound insulting, pejorative, and it's not. It is a book for people who are less deep into the rabbit hole already. You know, someone who has an M1 Garand. Right, right. Like most most cool. World War II uh, coffee table books will not have the gas trap in there. I'll just say yeah. that. Right. And we have the gas trap. We <laughs> and have, you have the gas trap. So the, some of the more exotic stuff we've got in there, we have uh, the high standard silence 22s. We have uh, the M2 submachine gun. We have the UD-42. We actually have the 45. The Rising. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Three different versions of the Rising. We've got the early, the late, and the folding stock. Um, we have the 45 caliber version of the the M42, the United Defense 42, the Marlin 42. The like, there's four different, three different companies involved in that thing. But they initially submitted it to the Army in 45, and the Army was like, "Oh, this is fine, but we're good on submachine guns. Like, we got the the simplified M1 Thompson, so no thanks." So then they made it nine millimeter, sold a whole pile of them to the Dutch. Uh, just in time for the Dutch colonies to be taken over by the Japanese. And so you end up with like 15,000 UD-42s sitting on a dock with nowhere to go. And then the OSS buys most of them to drop into Europe. So we've got and that, that in there. See, that's, that's, a, that's a good history that that's not just a regular coffee table history. That's yeah. a uh, collector exactly. history. Yeah, exactly. So like if you went out and bought a Rising, you're like, I want to know everything about this Rising. Yeah, this isn't going to be the book that'll tell you that. Um, this book will tell you why the Rising is relevant and a bit about what happened to it, where it was used, probably how many were made. Um, if there's any interesting stories about the designer or the factory well, or the process of adopting it, that's in there. Yeah, and people will see the Rising and go, wait, that looks cool. I need to get one of those. Yeah. That's probably what's going to happen from it. <laughs> the rare one. I've wanted a Rising for a long time. Ever since I set foot on Guadalcanal, I've wanted a racing. Ooh. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm surprised you don't have one, to be honest. You have the Scotty, I noticed. 
I did. I actually got rid of that rifle. What? No. I don't get rid of a lot. So uh, I traded that rifle to... Um, uh, Trade, what? even. Yeah. Well, all right. So here's the thing. I got that Scotty because it showed up in a gun shop in Tombstone, Arizona. It was a little shop that had way more interesting stuff more regularly than it had any right to. Uh, and they had this Scotty, and it wasn't that expensive. I got a decent deal on it. And it's weird and cool, but Italian guns aren't my thing. Like, I wasn't really, it's so rare that I didn't want to shoot it much. And I felt like it's kind of sitting here out of place in my collection. And then. I happened to find out that Reed Knight wanted a Scotty and didn't have a Scotty. All right. And he wanted one for the most nerdy collector reason ever. Which, this is this is such a Reed Knight thing. He had a 20 millimeter Scotty aircraft cannon. <laughs> and he wanted the rifle to go with it. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. It's not, so, like a, it's not like a cheap last ditch Arasaka. It's a, you know, yeah, multiple yeah. thousand dollar gun. Yeah. Jeez. So I ended up trading it to him for a Portuguese AR-10. Nice. He, he had a lot of that sort of stuff. And that was something that I really wanted at the time. So, so that was a, another question we had about your collection. How much of it is like just the normal standard issue rifles and how much is it like the, the weird stuff like the Scotties or I guess Mazda 38 is not that weird but it's full auto so it gets into the weird category in the US. Yeah. Um, most of it is standard. I don't, because it's much easier. I mean, the standard stuff's cheaper. It's a lot easier for me to pick that stuff up than to try and get every weird and crazy and highly, excuse me, highly desirable rare thing. So I try to get the weird stuff whenever I can. Um, but no, most of my stuff's fairly standard, which is maybe kind of depressing now. <laughs> All right, now is a good time, I think, to talk to you about what's got to be the most exciting thing going on in your, your Millsurp life right now. The History of Weapons in War app and website uh, over yes. at weaponsinwar.tv. Very exciting. I am excited about it, and it's going really well, which is even more exciting. You, you know, you do have, you said you wanted to have a historical educational firearm channel, and you have bloke on the range, British muzzleloaders, legacy collectibles, royal armories. The Armorer's Bench, Nine Hole Reviews, Cap and Ball. I mean, these guys, most of them are what I think of historical educational. So that's pretty perfect. That, that's what we were going for. Honestly, the biggest surprise to me was uh, the British Royal Armories. Like, you know what? They, they fit. They, you know, they fit the context of what we're trying to get. But they're, you know, a huge government bureaucracy. But, you know, we might as well ask them. And it turned out they were super excited and interested. And that was it's fantastic to have them on board. Yeah, the armories are great photos. They, yes. they have such. I, I've. They do have a lot of stuff, and I was excited to see them on there. It's really good. Uh, my collection, by the way, is nothing compared to the Royal Armories collection. Just to be <laughs> clear about that. Um, although there's French stuff that I have that they don't, because weirdly, being British, they haven't gone out of their way to have a super complete French collection. Wow, still got that rivalry going. Uh, always, yeah. Um, so the the gestation of of history of weapons and war was essentially that YouTube sucks. Um, that YouTube has been changing their rules, 
always for the worse and often without any warning. Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious YouTube doesn't like gun content. They're nervous about firearms content and their advertiser relationships. And yep. it seems pretty clear to me that there is not a long-term future for good firearms content on YouTube. And well, when they strike your channel and you can't even talk to a person about it and explain it, it's that tells you they don't care that much. Yeah, exactly. And then, so it's a little more mundane than that. The thing that really got me, the, the push that got me to, to do this, to set up my own streaming platform and service for this sort of content was like over a year ago now, like a year and a half ago now, April of last year, um, they made a change in the back end to their algorithm that they've never talked about. I can't ask anyone about it, but I can very clearly see its effect basically overnight. And it was to dramatically reduce the number of older videos that they would recommend to people. So on YouTube, the vast majority of a channel's views come from YouTube actually recommending a video. So whether it's, you know, the couple of videos that come up in the player screen after one video finishes, or that little sidebar of, of suggested videos, that's where the vast majority of everybody's views come from. There are people out there who will go Google, you know, oh, I want to see the Schwarzlosa 1901. Maybe there's something on that. And they'll type in Schwarzlosa 1901 and they'll find a video and they'll watch it. But that is a tiny fraction. And it was... Like, so, so people stumble upon you most? Is how they find you? W w uh, based on the recommendations? No. So the recommendations will recommend new content now. But they used to be really good about recommending older content. Like it used mm -hmm. to be 80% of my channel views were older material. And that's dropped to about 50%. Mm. Views on new, con new videos haven't really changed. So it was a dramatic reduction in how much they would offer people or suggest to people older videos. And my whole intention in doing this, really from the beginning, was to create a, a living encyclopedia of primarily military firearms history. And the idea was like, once I do a video, people will see it forever, like the information's there. And that worked really well until April of last year, when essentially they changed to, we don't really care what you did a year ago. We don't care if the content is still valid. We're only really interested in fresh new material. And so it dramatically reduced the views on the channel. Like with and, the shorts. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, the shorts are a separate thing. I freaking hate shorts. <laughs> yeah, they're annoying. Um, yeah, they, they want to be TikTok. Now it's short, 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 short. Um, what I wanted to do with History of Weapons and War is not just put all of these different creators in the same place, but have a way to manually curate content. So I can say, oh, here's a playlist on the foul. Are you interested in the foul? Here's different variations of the foul. Here's fouls at the range. And the cool thing of having multiple creators is I can do, say, my desktop teardown on some exotic weird fouls. And then you can go over and see Henry and Josh at Nine Hole actually running fouls on their long range course, their speed course. You know, how do these things actually perform? They're really a different look at the same firearm. In Will those there be any data, any um, like documents or data also on the foul, let's say? Not at this point. No, it's just video at this point. Um, I have a separate project that's been in the works for a while to have an archival website. Um, that was in development for like two years. And it kind of, it 
well, not kind of, it totally stalled out. Like, I just was not happy with the way the interface was going. Um, it'll still happen, but I'm not sure when at this point. Um, but what History of Weapons of War lets me do is manually curate the content to show people videos from yesterday alongside videos from 10 years ago because they are the same subject matter and they're relevant to each other. And that's something that YouTube used to do pretty well, and it just doesn't now. And so you're hosting all 4,000 plus, I think you said you had? Yep. Yeah. It's a subscription-only platform, so it's 10 bucks a month. Um, and that cost is that cost goes to a couple of places. Um, I wish I just got to pocket it all, but I don't. Um, it goes to actually paying the back end. Um, the system's run by Vimeo. And so we pay for video hosting on 4,000 videos. And then about three quarters of the money is actually divided up between the other channels that are on the platform. So the other thing that this was a combination of several different motivating factors. And one of the other ones was I've been very lucky. I've been blessed, you might say, that Forgotten Weapons became a huge channel and became very successful and is very successful. I don't know that I, it could become that successful if I started it from scratch today. We have a lot of other channels that are doing content that's equally good um, from an educational perspective, from a research perspective. Some of them, you know, some of them do much better research than I do. I tend to do less in-depth videos because they're more often. And, you know, we've got some people on History of Weapons of War who are spending significant amounts of time doing primary source research on video subjects, which is awesome. And I want to encourage that. And the, the only way to make that sustainable long-term is to give some of these creators a way to actually make money from what they're doing, ideally to the point that if they want to, they can quit their day jobs and make, you know, historical firearms research a full-time occupation. And today on YouTube, if you don't have half a million subscribers, it's not going to happen. Like, you're just not going to make that revenue, especially with the changes to their, their algorithms. Right, and we take for granted that YouTube is still around letting everyone on there because, you know, they can kick everyone tomorrow. And, and I think they will at some point. Like, <laughs> so, maybe it'll yep. be five years from now. You know, literally, all right. for all I know, it could have happened to me right now while we're recording this podcast, and I'll find out by <laughs> email when when we sign off. Like, You're strong. I'm pretty sure that's not going to happen. But I'm also pretty sure the situation is not going to be the same in five years that it is now. I just don't know when the change is going to happen. So, okay. All... So it's kind of a preemptive move. So you're kind of mirroring uh, your YouTube, but you will. You also said you're going to have uh, exclusive content, though, right? That's only on the app. Yes. And probably there's some stuff on YouTube you can't do, right? There's some reloading things you can't do. Exactly. Um, Bloke on the Range has already started doing some reloading videos that are exclusive to the app. Um, I think, well, app and Patreon, I believe, but they're not on YouTube proper. Um, I have a playlist of videos that I can't post on YouTube um, for various reasons. Um, we're not doing a ton of exclusive content because I do want to strike this balance of, like, the point of the channel is to make this information freely and readily available. But at the same time, I want to make sure that there's a place or it to exist in the future when YouTube does finally squash it. So yes, it is, uh, part of it is very much preemptive because if I wait until YouTube puts the hammer down on all of us, it's kind of, it's too late then to set something up. So we have to set it up in advance and that's what I decided to actually 
just bite the bullet and do. Yeah, hearing about it makes a lot more sense because I was picturing like, well, I mean, Full 30 existed for a little bit and like, I mean, yeah. Patreon kind of exists. So there's like free content or like a, the special content there. But hearing it now, kind of combining those two ideas into one and like, I really like that idea of like sorting by firearm or something like that to have like all the different content in one. And we have hundreds of playlists um, sorting content. Like we spent a really long time setting this up, categorizing all of the videos that we have to do that sort of curation. Um, we'll never unsubscribe you, by the way, from you know random channels that you wanted to follow, which is a common thing that YouTube does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you show Good up night. the top on the page is the newest video that day from um, all of our channels. And we have a most recent published, uh, basically, headline bar. It looks kind of like Netflix. So at the very top, most recent videos from newest going backwards from all the channels mixed together. And then below that are different types of playlists. So you can look by type of gun, you can look by country, um, and then you know, all sorts of other categories and criteria. Again, I'm a sucker for, for a playlist and a, any <laughs> list. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Whenever <laughs> I buy a, a new gun, the first thing I do is go look up all the videos I can watch on it. Yep. Awesome. And so uh, I assume this isn't all, all the creators that you're going to stick with. There will be more to come in the future, or is this the main group? For the time being, the group is the group. Um, we have nicely passed our break-even point, so, which is good. I, <laughs> I had to start this with a two-year contract with Vimeo, so... I can totally guarantee you it'll be running for another two years because I'm paying for it for two years regardless. Um, but we have passed the point where the income is enough to actually pay for the hosting and you know the, the back-end residual costs. And we're able to pay out, uh, we're, we're making nice payments out to the other content creators, um, which is awesome. Honestly, that's it makes me extremely happy to be able to send money to to all of these people who are spending so much time and effort um, on this passion project and be able to be like, hey, that was awesome. Here's here's $2,000. That must be great, actually. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's cool. Now, in the long term, I would love to have this um, as a way to help new creators. I already said I don't think I could create Forgotten Weapons on YouTube today the way I did 10 years ago. Um, yeah, what so about new channels like podcasts and guys like like maybe a New York guy with a Texan? Something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, I just don't have a mechanism for it yet. Well, part oh. of the problem is it's a... Yeah, it's you a said that on the Q&A. I heard that. <laughs> yeah, it's a profit-sharing thing. So the money that we bring in is divided between the channels that are there, which means if we bring in a new channel, it takes a cut off of everyone else's money, which doesn't mean we're not going to do it, doesn't mean we can't do it, but it means we have to be a little careful about it. And I want to, I'm not willing to do that until we have more income coming in. Um, Let's say someone wanted to come in at, for the publicity and then you get this channel. Are you, you then have to pay for more hosting each time you, 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 that, or you have like a whole, like a, like a set blanket amount of space for all your videos for the two years? Um, we have, it's two part. We have a flat fee that we have to pay for the hosting that gives us a certain amount of allowed content, which, we negotiated to be way more than necessary. So we're fine. Right, so, you, so you could put out as many videos as, as you want and be covered. Yeah. All right. And then we pay, awesome. we, 
we pay a fee per subscriber as well. And okay. so that's, that's how it makes sense for Vimeo. Like the flat fee covers their administrative people and some of the hardware, and then the per subscriber fee essentially pays for the bandwidth. Um, so if we, well, yeah, if, if we had a channel that wanted to come in and they're like, hey, I just want to get, I just want to be associated with all these other cool people and I don't need, like, don't give me cut of the, the profit. It, that's right. kind of a winner. Like, um, okay. It's not really fair to that channel, which is like, I'd want well, to I mean, know. You, for a new channel, sometimes that's like a way, you know, that yes. people give them a little vision and then yeah, they blow up on their own. But when we do that, we need to make sure that we have a roadmap for how to bring them on full time if they turn out to be really good. <laughs> right. Like, I don't want to bait and switch. Like, thanks for doing it for free. Now you can just leave. <laughs> oh, they get real popular and then they leave. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. So, so yeah, that's, that's part of the long-term goal. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a little fluid. You're, you're, you're sticking with this, but. Honestly, it was. It was kind of like the book. It's like I want to I want to start with the maximum number of like here's my list of channels that are appropriate to it. I want to get as many of them as possible and then uh you know expend the effort to get the 80%, 90% best I can and then start there. Let it grow. Oh. That sounds um, like the plan. The only one we're missing that I wanted to have is CN Arsenal. Yes, I heard you talk about that, but you yep. know, it, it, the way Athias talks about it, he it, it thinks he's worried about the whole situation too, and it seems like he's just kind of waiting it out. I don't know, but like we said, the YouTube might kick everyone off tomorrow. Yeah, um, he is more than welcome at any time. Like, I'd love to have him. We planned on having him, so you know, it's not a money thing. Um, if he changes his mind, he and May. They have an open door anytime. That would be awesome. So we talked about the <clears throat> app and the books, but ever since you went to that Finnish Army Museum, I think it was like a year ago, I've been hearing that you're going to write a Finnish small arms book. Yes, that's my that... next major project. Oh, shit. I thought maybe the right. Russian book took it over or something. But it did for a time. Um, we had a number of other projects that came up, and the finished book is going to be the most significant, difficult thing that I've ever done. Oh, no. You like doing that to yourself. Apparently, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> why not? You know, all I'm doing is publishing other books and helping run the publishing company and, you know, posting four videos a week. There's so much free time. I ought to just, you know, also write another big research book. Yep. I can't believe it. All right, that's great news. So what I told James, James Rupley, the photographer collaborator for the small arms stuff, um, is we'll do US and then I'll write the second World War II book. And then I'm shifting gears to Finland because I've been really want to do this book on Finland. It's a really cool topic to me. I'm excited about it. The photography is completely done. Like James and I, over the last two years, nice. we've we've done a, a shitload of photography for this book, uh, right. and it's going to cover. I had a, a little bit of a uh oh moment when I saw that um, uh, Wet Dog is printing a book on Finnish Mos and the Gons. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna <laughs> have to... shit. And I'm excited to see it, but 
it is not a problem for the project I have in mind because I'm going to cover all Finnish small arms. So we're doing rifles, pistols, submachine guns, and machine gun, light machine guns. Okay. All right. Uh, all right. Yeah. So my Great. that was so that was kind of an interesting table of contents to figure out at the beginning of the project because if you look, the Finns kind of used everything. Like there's Beretta 34s that were used by Finland and C96s and high powers and CZ27s and CZ38s, I think, and Roshas and Carcanos. And it's like, how do I put all this in one? Like, you just can't. It'd be huge. It'd be three volumes long, like the book in Finnish. And so the conclusion that I came to is I'm going to cover guns that were either manufactured or mechanically modified in Finland. And, and um, they were all business because when you see a stock where the, you know, when they do the fingered groove, uh, you know, two-piece stock, they'll put the front a different color wood completely than the back. They didn't care. It was business. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, there's, there's very many matching. right there. <laughs> Their unpleasant eastern neighbor. Um, but yeah, that whole finish, those finished small arms, it, I, I, I didn't realize all this was going on. Yeah. And then after the Mosins, you've got the Finnish AKs, what we typically call Valmets. Um, and there was a whole series of those, both military and commercial. And so we're covering all of those. Um, they had two light machine guns. They had the LS-26 early on. They had the KVKK-62 uh, after World War II. So we're covering those. Um, their famous submachine guns are the Suomis. And then they also had a copy of the Russian PPS-43s. So we're covering those, plus a few smaller guns. Like, they did a copy of the uh, Bergman 1920 um, called uh, Lindelof. We've got that in the book. Uh, and then we're not doing heavy machine guns, so I'm not getting into Mosin, or to uh, Maxims. So book. you just have to write, right? Because you're saying all the photography is done, so you just have to do the writing part. That yeah, you, you sound just like James. <laughs> <laughs> so get on it. On one or two occasions, he has... Completely, like, just innocently and very seriously said, oh, yeah, that book's done. It just has to be written. <laughs> I, just, I, yeah. I didn't mean it like that simple. I just meant, you know, like, but yeah, you we, no longer have to attain, right? That was because I used to think that was kind of the hard part is getting the rifles that you have to photograph and getting to this, you know, getting there and getting access. It absolutely is. And <laughs> we, we took a couple trips to Finland. Um, we've done photography. Frankly, we did photography with the Finnish Army Museum. We did photography with Sako. Um, obviously, they've been around basically as long as Finland has been a country. Um, and we did photography with some private collectors. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah, we got freaking everything. It's fantastic. Uh, Any crazy, like, secret things that were in the Army, uh, Finnish Army Museum basement? Uh, so it's not the basement, by the way. It's basically... <laughs> oh an underground cave air raid shelter complex, which it's is better. pretty cool. Yeah. Also not heated, which made it wonderful for photography because the lights mean that we're pretty much always sweating when we're taking pictures. And that was the most comfortable place to do photography we've yet had. But um, I was a little sad. I did not, I was not able to get photographs of the flamethrower with a Suomi mounted to it. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> that was a little bit of a bummer. Um, there's some really, I mean, it's 
there's some really freaking cool Milserp stuff in there. You know, uh, do you know the the Finnish uh, M27 cavalry carbines? They had their extra short hmm. version of the M27. Hmm. No, I didn't uh, know those. They had a cavalry version of the M91 before that. And we've got pictures of that. They had a whole pile of experimental sniper rifles. Wow. Um, we got those. There's cool versions of everything. Ski um, troopers? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of a misnomer, but yes. <laughs> um, so people usually, when they say ski trooper, they're usually referring to the, the M27s that have double sling slots. Yeah. In them, which is actually, that was just the standard rifle at the beginning of production. And it was for a sling that you could use to sling the rifle kind of backpack style. Um, it was a multi-purpose sort of sling. And then it didn't take very many before they realized this is not really that much benefit and it's a pain in the butt to make. And so they stopped doing it. The actual ski trooper guns are the ones that have a slot in the front and a rotating swivel at the back. Ah, okay. Because that was the more conducive cross-country skiing sling arrangement. See, I need a finished small arms book. So I'm waiting for your book. Well, in the meantime, mine will be <laughs> I expect a solid two years away. Shit. So I think it's going to take me a good year to do it. And then the better part of a year to do all the publishing. So in the meantime, buy the book from, uh, from Wet Dog. Right. I don't know the name and I apologize. I don't offhand. But get that one. It's going to cover the Mosins, which is the most relevant thing for most of the American collector market. Yep, I got I got that one on pre-order, so we'll see how it is. Me too. <laughs> I'm excited to see it. <laughs> Matt DeRosio. Okay. I do not know him. All right. I mean, not that I necessarily should, but in well, the meantime, I've been, I've been building a Finnish rifle collection, which is a lot of fun too. Nice. The one thing that I have for mine that I suspect he doesn't, I kind of hope he doesn't just because it's It'd be cool to be exclusive on it. Um, Sako has a an original like advertising flyer for the M twenty eight thirty because oh, they really? sold the things commercially as well. So they had a standard pamphlet talking about why it's the greatest new gun and why you should send yours in and you know, send in your old twenty eight and get it upgraded or your M ninety one and get it upgraded. <laughs> oh, and cool. the one that Sako is signed oh, okay. by every member of the engineering team. Ooh. <laughs> That's so cool. So, I mean, That's awesome. obviously, pictures of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. All right. So we, got... We're waiting for the Finland book. But we. So, speaking of follow up books, are you planning on doing a follow up to your Chinese Warlord pistol book with a Chinese rifle book? Um, Ooh. I would say half no and half yes, I already did. Ooh. <laughs> um, Gulf Gold. <laughs> about 30 years ago, wrote a monograph. It was like 50 pages long on Chinese, uh, Chinese warlord era Mauser rifles. And it was spiral bound and like mimeographed. And I don't know how many copies he printed, but it was probably like a hundred. And when we were doing the, the warlord pistol project, like I never actually even managed to own a copy of this this book myself, but a friend of mine did, and I had scanned his, so I had a copy of it electronically. And I wrote to him and got his permission to reprint his monograph as an actual bound book. And so we printed it oh. alongside Pistols of the Warlords. Oh, that's um, cool. He called it Arming the Dragon. 
And there were a few changes, like we updated a few bits. There was some new information that had come out, some corrections. But that's that's got basically all the standard sort of information on on the factory-made Chinese Warlord Mausers. And it's a cheap book, too, because it's, it's tiny. It's like four by seven inches, I think, and about 50 pages. So. All right. He's the, you're like the Chinese arms expert. Oh, they're That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't have a collection of the Mausers myself. I have one. I have a Hanyang 88 that I picked up many, many years ago. Um, the rest of my Chinese collection is, is just the pistols. And I, I was talking to my wife, and I said that you, uh, your nickname was Gun Jesus. And she said, which I never really thought of before, has any religious organization ever you know, contacted you for blasphemy over uh, taking the Lord's name in vain in a way? Uh, organization? No. Every uh -oh. once in a while, I'll get comments from someone who's like, you're some kind of asshole. Like, that's <laughs> wrong. Why would you do that? And I, well, frankly, I just ignore them. But it's, it is not a nickname that I chose for myself. It's, it's one that was sort of given to me. And you know what? You don't really get to pick your nickname on the internet, and it could be a lot worse than that, so I'll take it. <laughs> Community has spoken. All right, everyone. It's time for some Milserp trivia. Oh boy. I made this one an easy version today to be just a fun way to bring up some cool firearms to talk with Ian. Sometimes people get it right, sometimes they get it wrong, but today's trivia here is on based off your channel, so I'm pretty sure you're going to get them correct. All right, so here we go. Number one. The Forgotten Weapon's most popular YouTube video overall, and three of the top four are of these types of firearms. Well, machine guns. Correct. The number so, one, I believe, minigun. Yes. So not narcissistically looking at my stats every day and hitting refresh, but <laughs> yeah, who would do that? But th this says a lot about your audience. I was thinking that three of the top four are insane machine guns, but mm. I have to know: is it as fun? Like, is it the most fun type of gun to shoot? A, a machine gun, I guess, even the the M134, but yeah, pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, it has to be. It helps that like my favorite thing to shoot is a light machine gun. So, like magazine-fed rifle-caliber light machine gun is about my favorite category. Like, uh, so, w give me a specific one then. What? Which one? Oh, uh, the Bren, the Lewis, the oh, BAR, nice. the the Degturev. That stuff. It's mostly World War One, World War Two era. Interesting. And the M134. And do you feel like what is the feeling when you're unloading on that that truck, that pickup? Uh, the minigun is yes, a massive vibration. Um, in fact, if you watch the video, there's I left it in because I found it hilarious. I wanted to get a shot of the front end of the gun. You know, a, a muzzle on shot. And so I took my camera on a tripod and the whole gun was mounted on a two axle trailer, you know, with its batteries and its ammo. There's a lot of infrastructure for a minigun, by the way. Um, and so I stuck my camera on the front end of the trailer and fired off a, a burst with the thing. And when I got home and looked at the footage, the moment I opened fire, the, the video feed went to total blur because of the <laughs> vibration in the trailer going up through the tripod legs. And it was 
It showed nothing. And it was, I, frankly, I found it hilarious and left that clip in the video. But with, yeah, with the minigun, it's just vibration. It, but it's still full controllable, though, huh? Um, <laughs> yes and no. So, yes, it is. But especially, like, you need a little bit of practice. And it's hard to get practice at 6,000 rounds a minute. You know, someone <laughs> will say, oh, do you want to have a try with the minigun? And is a hundred rounds. And so you generally don't get much practice. And, you know, with a regular normal machine gun, you can kind of start shooting. Okay. That's the recoil, push back into the gun, bring it under proper control and then bring it on target. And if you do that process on a minigun, it's like a thousand rounds downrange. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, well, that yeah, looked that like was... a, it looked like a blast. And by the way, I would say that the the top couple of videos on the channel tell you literally nothing about the audience. What <laughs> that tells you is what videos are the non-audience people watching? Because the I audience hear, yeah. is a smaller core group that'll watch all the videos. The people who just show up for one video, most likely thing they're going to watch is the minigun because it's spectacle. All right, question two. The most popular forgotten weapons YouTube video that is not a machine gun is this Ooh. Star Wars looking HK G11, which used this type of unique ammunition that never quite caught on, but sounds good on paper. Uh, oh, that's that's <laughs> too easy. That's tasteless. Yeah, <laughs> So I wanted to ask. I don't know the whole story of why we no one else went to caseless, because it does sound like a cool idea. A lot of people tried it. Um, there were a couple of problems with caseless ammo that turned out to be probably not insurmountable, but too expensive and difficult to surmount to make it practical to continue with. One of them, so of course, the, you don't have a cartridge case. So instead, you're, basically your powder is the case. So you have to somehow, um, the powder has to form a composite solid block. It can't be powder. It has to be a solid unit. Um, uh, what happens when it breaks? Like if you have a round crack in the gun, how do you get it out? Because there's no extractor, because there's no case. So if the round breaks, or if it just doesn't fire for some reason, you have to have some mechanism to get the, 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 the spent, well, the unspent broken round out. Uh, and that's tricky because... I mean, normally part of the goal is you're getting rid of that sort of component because you don't need it. Um, another part, another And, and issue, that was something that happened often, that the case would get stuck in there, or it was just like thinking no, ahead? Not, not super often, but it would happen. Like, imagine you're running any other gun and you have no extractor. Like, it doesn't, you don't lose a case very often, but what happens when you do? Right. And these are all military arms. So, okay, so it only happens one in a thousand rounds. Well, you've got a thousand guys in the field. Every time they all pull the trigger, someone's going to have their gun just stop without a way to fix it. Um, so, so this was a short-lived idea then? Um, it keeps coming around cyclically. Uh, honestly, the most successful caseless rounds are the ones from like the Civil War. The Volcanic was a caseless cartridge. Um, oh, cool. Where instead of trying to come up with a block of composite powder with a bullet embedded in it, they took a big lead bullet, hollowed it out, and stuffed the powder inside the base of the bullet. So 
the problem with those is that they were underpowered because you just couldn't fit much powder into the thing. Right, um, right. You need the full case. And they did, have that, they did have that same issue of how do you get a stuck round out? And the answer there was use a cleaning rod and you just knock it out the back of the gun. But, That's annoying. Yeah. Um, heat was also an issue. That brass cartridge case, yeah, I don't know if you've ever touched one straight out of a gun, but it takes a lot of heat with it. Right. Um, and when you don't have that, all that heat is, more of that heat is going into the, the parts of the gun. I don't think that's quite as significant of a problem, but it was an issue. It had to be overcome. I guess, yeah, after thousands of rounds. Yeah, surprising how and, much it adds up. And yeah. often caseless guns are done in combination with very high rates of fire. The concept of having a system where you can fire two or three rounds before, basically before the in, the the recoil impact hits the shooter, so your three round burst is all fired at the same, basically the same point of impact. Oh, that's which cool. again sounds really cool, <laughs> but it turns out to be really pretty hard to actually pull off. Oh well. So how was the G eleven looked at in history? The quote I got actually from a guy from Mauser once at SHOT Show was that uh, when Germany reunified, West Germany had the option of either adopting the G11 or rebuilding East Germany, and they chose to rebuild East Germany because it would be cheaper. <laughs> All right. That's pretty the good. G11 is seen as a, I think, thank God they didn't adopt it, because can you imagine what they'd be dealing with if they had adopted it? All right. Poor G11. <laughs> All right. Question three. The oldest forgotten weapons video on YouTube where Ian actually shoots a firearm is the one where he shows off this interesting semi-automatic rifle that probably didn't catch on because of things like the fact that the action locks in sideways and the barrel's offset to the left and because of its cool method of closing the action using the trigger. That would be the ZH-29. <laughs> Yes, and the thing I found interesting was this was submitted to uh, the U.S. in 276 Pedersen for the U.S. trials. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what was, did they give a reason why they said no? Was it this, this kind of stuff? Um, no, it wasn't that. I honestly don't remember exactly what it was about the ZH-29 in U.S. trials that got it picked out. In general, it's actually a pretty good gun. Uh, compared to the other stuff that was being floated around at the time. It did make some sales. China bought them. Ethiopia, of all people, bought them. Mm. Um, and there were a number of other small sales, and a lot of people tested it. Basically, everybody tested the ZH-29. Um, even the Japanese had a copy of it that they tested, if I remember correctly. So that whole sideways action worked fine? Yeah. Yeah, it probably had some long-term issues, like long-term maintenance durability issues, but nothing nothing immediate. Um, frankly, I'd love to have a ZH-29. Uh, here's a fun trivia fact about that video, by the way. That video was terrifically awful in quality with a terrible microphone and a ton of wind, <laughs> and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. And years later, probably close to 10 years later, eight years later, the guy who owned that rifle sadly passed away, and his collection was auctioned off by the James Julia Auction Company, with whom I was filming at the time. And I did a new video, a much better uh, redo of that ZH29 video using the exact same rifle. <laughs> That's kind of cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
That is cool. Like, yeah. yeah, that was another question I was going to ask is like, do you plan on redoing some of your older videos to up the quality? But I guess that answers that. I don't redo a lot of them. Um, I'll redo them if I missed a significant piece of information or if the quality was just really bad. And the ZH29, like, there's a whole batch of half a dozen videos I did in one range trip, including the ZH29. And I've redone a lot of them, and any that I, any I haven't redone yet are on the list to be redone. All right, question four. The Forgotten Weapon's most popular video of a Mauser, my favorite, is this big boy that I've sat at home jealous and watched you shoot dozens of times as you tested the penetration power of its expensive 13 millimeter rounds. You are making these too easy. That is, of course, the yeah. Tiger Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows the Tiger Bear. Well, you know, some of, some of it's just to, to, to chit-chat about these things. Like, uh, I was curious, like, how much of an impact on, on the war did all these anti-tank guns, like the boys' anti-tank rifle and uh, the WZ-35, like, ha- like, did they really have an effect on the war, or was it just, like... Some did, it- some did. Uh, those two did not really. They, they, um, the tank of air, not a ton, a little bit. I'd say the tank of air was more useful than the boys, probably. Um, what the Germans discovered the the best way to deal with British tanks was is to hide a seventy seven millimeter field gun behind a bush, and wheel it out and just direct fire it into the side of the tank. That's uh, pretty good. Very, um. The, the anti-tank rifles that were the most like most useful, had the most impact on the war, were the two Russian ones, the PTRS and the PTRD. And that's largely because they made hundreds of thousands of them. And they gave them to freaking wow. everybody. And uh, the projectile, so that's a 14.5 by 114 millimeter cartridge that is still used in anti-aircraft machine guns to this day, although not as effective as it used to be. It fires if I remember off the top of my head, a 972 grain tungsten uh, ceramic composite armor piercing bullet at over 3000 feet per second. Oh, it's like, holy crap. The guns are literally seven feet long. They are massive. And you're saying hundreds of thousands of them. Hundreds of thousands of those things. So that can make an impact. Yes. So those things would defeat the frontal armor on a Panzer III, maybe a Panzer IV. And they could go through side and rear armor on a lot of bigger vehicles. They would really mess up half-tracks, scout cars, all that sort of stuff. Uh, And they were deployed in quantities where you'd have multiple anti-tank gunners all firing on, on a group of German vehicles simultaneously from different angles. Um, the PTRS is a semi-automatic rifle in that cartridge. And the Soviets actually put those things to good use. Now, they were still kind of obsolete by the end of the war, but they did more than anything else in the anti-tank field. Wow. Yeah, I didn't realize. And how was it shooting this uh, Mauser? Uh, that must have been a little... It, you know, it, Did you think about how expensive the rounds are every time you shoot some of these things? Uh, we spent, so the owner of that rifle brought it down. He came to visit. He's a guy I know. He's a cool guy. Very cool guy. Um, brilliant gun collector. 
Um, he actually, while it was still being published, he wrote the Q&A section for Arms Heritage magazine. I think he still does Q&A for American Rifleman, maybe. Um, he and I spent three months looking for ammo before that video, and we came up with four original cartridges. So because we were doing, we were testing penetration, we couldn't just hand load it because we needed the original powder charge and most importantly, the original bullet. Um, wow. We ended up with four cartridges and two of them didn't work. We had <laughs> that sucks. And frankly, the cost was a lot less substantial than the fact that we, it took us three months to find two cartridges. And uh, one of them blew the gun off the stand. They both did. So, <laughs> yeah, people give the, the most common comment on that video is calling me an idiot for using sticks like that. Um, that was a shooting stick. It's like a hunting shooting stick uh, or shooting yeah. bipod. And we used it because that gun was it was awful to shoot. And frankly, we just didn't want to shoot it from the shoulder prone where you're not moving and the gun just slams right. into you. Um, uh, Wimp may at CN Arsenal did fire from the shoulder, but I'll, I'll accept that. I didn't want to. Um, and so the own, the gun's owner was standing right there. He's the one who brought the sticks. He's the one who suggested the sticks. And even after uh, the first shot, the gun fell off the sticks. He <laughs> was just fine with us doing it again the same way. So Yeah, I guess you're not going to break it. As long as the no, guy said, do it. Might break the with that thing but yeah <laughs> yeah those guns are it's remarkable how heavy they are and yet how intense the recoil is anyway amazing and and you penetrated right you, you penetrated the well, everything yeah. you brought right um, so it's so pretty we strong used, we used i know i detailed all this in the video description off the top of my head i think it was half inch AR-500 steel, which is equivalent to the frontal armor on a British World War I tank. It used like 12 millimeter in the front, and then I think 8 and 6 millimeter elsewhere. Um, we went through it square on. When we angled it at 45 degrees, it... God, I can't remember now if it went through or not. Um, I remember now. I should have braced it better, but I did brace it. What you see largely happening is... No, it didn't uh, go through, but it left the dent in okay. there, though. Yeah. And there are a number of things. Like, if I could do it again, I'd put some ballistics gel on the inside to see what, try, like, try to capture what actually came through. Um, I would brace it a little more heavily, but I don't think that impacted our results, really. So, so does that interest you? Like, we talk about redoing videos, but redoing mm -hmm. it just for a different idea, not because of bad quality. Yeah. It, you know, if you um, get a new new tools or new toys to play with, like that monitors, slow motion cameras and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, with the tank variety the issue would be finding more ammunition for it. <laughs> I will often buy weird ammo in small quantities when I come across it. Like I have ten rounds of fifty-five boys. <laughs> I don't have a boys anti-tank rifle. I don't have any plans to get one. But I found the ammunition one time at a gun show and figured, you know what? I think it was like 200 bucks for 10 rounds, but whatever. Yeah, it's awesome. And I can pull play the ammo and find it and hold on to it until I have the opportunity to use it. Yeah, that makes sense. Especially with the some of the prices for some of these rare ammos go. If it's a deal, grab it. 
Yeah. Yeah, we found some at the the Tulsa gun show, and my my friend actually bought I think five rounds of fifty five boys on a clip. Okay, some of it's out there. It's not nearly as hard to get as the tank of air. Okay, question five. The most popular forgotten weapons YouTube short is somehow not a machine gun or a semi-auto rifle or even something forgotten, but is of this World War One military-issued, I won't even say what type it is, make it a little harder, military-issued gun used by this country. So I need the country and the gun. Spain. So wait, what do you think it is? <laughs> it's a Winchester 1895 Russian contract. Oh, okay. Yeah, but I know that it went to Spain because that's my gun. That, it that it's hit. Oh yeah. Oh, see, that's one of the ones from the collection. That one's actually mine. See, that's Man. easy because I have a total of like six shorts that I've published. <laughs> Ten maybe, yeah. but. Uh, now I heard a rumor that the Russians would reject rifles because of trivial flaws, like the the wood grain is it yes. wasn't straight. Is that true? Well, no, about specifically the wood grain not being straight, but they were extremely strict. Yeah, there was a, a Russian um, inspection detail at Winchester inspecting rifles in the factory um, when those oh. were being made. And yes, they would reject them for basically anything. Hmm. And who pays oh, for that a... when they reject it? Uh, is, that on, is that on Winchester? Yeah, wow. It's rebuild it, like fix it and send it back through if you want to get it approved. Um, there's a fantastic book on this subject called um, Allied Rifle Contracts in America by Luke Mercaldo. It is yeah, about, that. yeah, it's all the rifle production for the allies that was done in the U.S. during World War I. So Winchester 1895s, the, the American-made Mosins, the like Belgian Mosins, um, made by, um, well, not Harrington and Richardson, someone, um, Berthier's, uh remington rolling blocks it's a fantastic book it's not that expensive i highly recommend it it's extremely well done hmm. yeah that'd be a cool book to read mm -hmm. yeah okay so that's it for part one if you can't wait a few weeks for the part two you can grab it up on the patreon at millsurp hq part two has all of our millsurp arms questions our fud lore our user submitted questions the speed round comments about shooting guns reloading other content creators the future of the channel so make sure you check out that one too to be continued